for Thursday, June 17th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? Or a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, a few years ago, federal health agencies announced a plan to end the HIV epidemic by 2030. Then the COVID-19 pandemic hit. I don't think that we would have achieved the goals set for 2030 had COVID not happened, but certainly this has knocked us back on our heels further. Dr. Wendy Armstrong, medical director of Grady Health System's HIV clinic, joins me to discuss what the COVID-19 pandemic has meant for the fight against HIV. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Back in 2019, federal health officials announced an ambitious plan to end the HIV epidemic in the U.S. by 2030. But then came the COVID-19 pandemic, which made reaching that goal even more complicated, says Dr. Wendy Armstrong, medical director of Grady Health System's HIV clinic in Atlanta. She's with me now to discuss those complications and what they mean for the effort to end HIV. Wendy, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by asking you to kind of lay out for me the state of the HIV epidemic prior to COVID-19. During the Trump administration, they laid out a plan to end the HIV epidemic by 2030. How was that moving along as we entered into early 2020 before COVID kind of took over our lives? Well, I'll tell you, Sam, there's a couple different answers to that question. I'll say, as a community that really cares about trying to end the HIV epidemic, we were so excited to hear this become front and center when the uh, initiative to end the epidemic was announced. And to have an initiative that had bipartisan support was really extraordinary. Where we were really depends on where you are in the country. And so there are many areas of the country then that have made tremendous progress towards ending the epidemic. Examples that I think we all point to include areas that have been known for their HIV epidemic, so places like San Francisco and like New York or even like Seattle, where there has been extraordinary progress and the and the epidemic initiative, I think, further helped hone that progress. Then there are other areas like where we live now, which is Georgia and the United States Southeast, um, where the epidemic has stalled, uh, ending the epidemic has stalled in many ways, or the progress has been much, much slower. And so I think um, for us, we were thrilled to not only have an initiative that helped focus those efforts, but to have some additional dollars for counties 
that uh, have greater rates of new HIV than other areas of the country. And so the communities, when we talk about the Atlanta area, it was uh, particularly those uh, designated counties were Fulton, uh, DeKalb, Cobb, and Gwinnett. So those communities really have come together with plans to understand how to really make progress. And that was well underway before the COVID-19 pandemic. That said, it was always and still going to be a challenging climb, even without COVID-19. There were increased resources, but it's still not enough for us to um, make all the progress that we need. But I think we were in a position where we were hopeful that we might make some gains that we'd been waiting for for many years. Set up for me some of the real challenges that those target communities were facing, specifically with HIV. You said it was going to be kind of a long, hard road. I think um, so much of that requires us to think again about why is HIV continuing to be a challenge in the U.S. Southeast and in our four counties in Atlanta, and and it's not restricted really to those four counties that that have challenges. And that's when I think you have to understand the underlying situation, and this is where we have to discuss about very, very challenging social problems, and those include structural racism and the downstream effects of structural racism, access to care and the fact that we're not in a Medicaid expansion state, stigma, ongoing stigma, ongoing issues with poverty and transportation and education and having the message um, get to the community with the right communicators. And so many of those are not strictly uh, medical challenges where, uh, you know, adding a new service in a clinic will um, easily address those challenges. And so that's why it's going to be an uphill battle, and it's always been uh, the reason, I think, that the Southeast has continued to lag behind the progress in the rest of the country. So if that's the state of things kind of prior to the pandemic, talk to me about what happened when the pandemic hit and it kind of became apparent that it was going to be as big a public health challenge as it turned out to be. Yeah, I will say none of us have ever lived through anything quite like this, and none of us were fully prepared. I think, again, that the HIV care delivery system, that different locations um, were forced to respond in uh, different ways. But what was very clear was that we needed to not do business as usual. And for many of our patients, they were understandably and appropriately concerned about coming into the healthcare environment when the message was to quarantine at home. And uh, where those who were coming into healthcare often were coming because of symptoms that might be consistent with COVID-19. And so those who were healthy wanted to stay away, um, as we asked them to do, in order to minimize their risk. And so immediately, we had a situation where those patients who were not ill were also not coming into healthcare and risked having uh, medication interruptions and healthcare disruptions in other ways. I think that across the um, HIV care provider community, some clinics closed to in-person services because of uh, issues like this. Other clinics were able to rapidly shift to other modalities and ways to treat people, um, for example, telehealth. Other clinics uh, combined these approaches and tried to stay open um, for in-person visits in order to uh, serve those who didn't have other means to get health care. And so there were a variety of responses, but it was all new territory and it was all challenging. And it was all predicated on the fact that we knew there were many people who were not in care and not getting the care that they needed. 
What are the consequences of, say, someone having their care interrupted or or someone not seeking care uh, when they should be? One of the keys with HIV control is a consistent supply of medications and uh, monitoring the effect of those medications and making sure that they are effectively suppressing the virus to a level we call undetectable. And for many of our patients in the Grady Health System, many of whom rely on our safety net Ryan White care system, uh, the way to get medications is to come into the clinic and pick up a medication supply. And you mentioned uh, Ryan White. This is federally funded HIV care, yes? That is, that's correct. And while we shifted as much as we could to mail out medication supplies, interrupting medication can lead to the virus becoming detectable again. That, uh, again, can have adverse uh, health consequences for the individual. The other thing that happens, and we all do this, is that, you know, every individual tries to, you know, maybe stay on their medication. And so what you might do if you know you can't get into a pharmacy or a new supply in two weeks, but you've got one week left, is, you know, it makes logical sense to think that, well, maybe if I take a medication every other day, that'll get me there and that'll be almost as good as taking medications daily. But in uh, HIV care, unfortunately, that risks the virus becoming resistant to the medications. And so that has even longer term effects than the temporary interruption Mm -hmm. might cause. What were kind of other big impacts that you saw for people living with HIV? I'm actually going to take your question a slightly different direction and say uh, another huge impact for persons at risk for HIV was really vanishing centers for HIV testing. I mean, no longer were we setting up large-scale venues where HIV testing could easily be done because that really wasn't safe during COVID. So the number of tests and the opportunity for early diagnosis really plummeted during COVID. Another important prevention option that plummeted during COVID, and these were both seen across the country and not specific to the Atlanta area, was engagement in pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is the opportunity to take a pill to prevent the acquisition of HIV for individuals who are at increased risk of getting HIV. And so those were really very, very important preventive means or early diagnostic means that we saw major changes. And then, you know, for individuals um, living with HIV, in addition to medication access, it's many of those things that um, the rest of the population is at risk of as well. So things like other kinds of health screenings, uh, control of high blood pressure, cancer screenings, and so on. And some of those are things that persons living with HIV are at greater risk of having those complications. And so we saw every aspect of care being affected. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, talking today with Dr. Wendy Armstrong, Medical Director of Grady Health System's HIV Clinic in Atlanta. We're discussing what COVID-19 has meant for the effort to end HIV. What do we know about how COVID-19 affects people living with HIV? And does this kind of concurrence of events, this pandemic, which interrupts people's HIV care, potentially puts them more at risk? Is it complicated by the fact that these are populations that are more affected by COVID-19? So first, um, we were very interested in trying to understand what COVID infection looks like in an individual living with HIV. Does having HIV give you a worse prognosis with COVID or more likely to have symptoms than not living with HIV? And that's actually taken a remarkably um, long time to sort out. And what we've learned are a couple of things. And one is that individuals 
with more advanced HIV probably do have worsening outcomes with COVID infection. And so that was one piece. A second piece um, was that we know that individuals living with HIV have greater rates of comorbidities. And by that, I mean things like high blood pressure, cardiac disease, and so on. And those are all things that worsen outcomes with COVID. And so in some cases, it wasn't the concurrent HIV infection, but the comorbidities that led our patients to have uh, worse outcomes. And then the third really important thing is that COVID-19 was, as we all know now, disproportionately affecting our black and brown communities. And unfortunately, in the Southeast, HIV disproportionately affects our black and brown communities for many of the structural reasons that I mentioned before. And so you have a group that's at greater risk of contracting uh, COVID-19 and at greater risk already of uh, living with HIV. And so there were many, many ways that these two epidemics intersected with each other. Short of kind of the direct impacts for people at risk of contracting HIV, people living with HIV, I would have to imagine that there was just a lot of attention and potentially a lot of resources that were pulled away from fighting HIV to address COVID-19. No, there's no question that that it was true. And the impact was felt in many, many different ways. And so even before we talk about sort of human resources, laboratory resources became a real challenge for us. And the two very specific ways it impacted our care of our people living with HIV was that one, because of COVID testing, we had less access to HIV viral loads, which was is the critical laboratory test that we use to monitor someone's response to therapy. And so we were unable to get that test result in a timely way very, very often because uh, so much of the testing machinery was devoted to COVID-19. And then for a similar reason, because swabs and some of the types of media and the nitty gritty uh, materials that we use to test for COVID-19 were diverted, we actually had a, a difficult time testing for many sexually transmitted infections. And so both of those actually made care more challenging. And so that was perhaps an unexpected challenge. But certainly human resources was another. I think uh, many of the physicians and advanced practice providers and so on who care for patients living with HIV were pulled into the COVID-19 response. And then even more for those of us who continued to devote our effort towards our population living with HIV, we were still actually doing many things um, related to COVID. So for example, in our clinic, we had many of our providers devoted to testing our patients for COVID-19. And now we have many uh, uh, individuals on our staff devoted to vaccinating people for COVID-19. But it has taken away from the uh, workforce that we have to do routine visits for our patients living with HIV. And forced some you know, very difficult decisions about where do you devote your effort and which takes priority. So many of our patients told us that they wanted to get tested at our clinic or want to get vaccinated at our clinic where there's an environment of trust that we felt it was appropriate to continue to offer those services within our clinic rather than diverting to other county testing sites. And so for us, this has been a, a real struggle. And, and I'm just wondering, too, about the public attention. I feel like that's such a crucial part of a big public health initiative like trying to end the HIV epidemic, having public officials, public health officials, and just the general public aware that this is the big thing that we're pushing for. I would imagine it was probably hard to keep that attention when everyone was focused on the coronavirus. 
No, Sam, I think that's a great question, and I think that's exactly true. The end the HIV epidemic initiative sort of went underground in many ways during most of this past year that we've been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And honestly, we're starting from a position that's not strong. While all of us are acutely aware of the end the epidemic initiative, still when I see people who are not in my specific part of the medical field, so they may be medical people or other lay people, there's very little appreciation for the fact that the HIV epidemic is not over in this country, and it is very, very far from over in our part of the country. So already um, trying to get that awareness out is important, but many, many are not aware. And so then when COVID-19 came along, uh, again, these efforts really uh, went underground in many ways. All hands were on deck for COVID-19. And it's only now that we're really trying, again, to pick up those pieces and reinvigorate you know, this drive toward ending the epidemic. I want to ask about the road ahead. So the deadline for this initiative was 2030. That's eight and a half years out at this point after a year and a half of setbacks because of COVID-19. What's your outlook for the future and, and maybe what are some of the big challenges ahead? Yeah, I think 2030 was always an optimistic or ambitious goal, again, for our part of the world. I don't think that we would have achieved 2030. We would have achieved the goals set for 2030 had COVID not happened. But certainly this has knocked us back on our heels um, further. And so uh, the important thing is that there is a continued effort. And I think that if the COVID-19 pandemic allows us to shine a light on disparities in care, on the importance of housing, the importance of broadband access, the importance of access to care, the impact of structural racism. If it gives us new opportunities to think about pop-up clinics in different places or utilizing telehealth in different places, if it puts more money into the public health infrastructure, then it may be a win in the long run. But that all takes resources and a lot of commitment. And my fear is that uh, many of those COVID-19 lessons will fade as COVID-19 fades, and uh, we desperately need those to carry forward in order to get back on track to end the epidemic in any kind of a timely way, 2030 aside. And the implication you seem to be making is that we have learned some lessons from COVID-19 that you think can be applied to the fight against HIV. I think we've learned some incredible lessons. And again, the key is, can we capitalize on those and move forward? Some of those lessons are the importance of collaboration, the importance of national goals and national plans, the importance of resources. Look what happened with COVID-19 vaccine, given the resources. And if uh, the same types of resources can be devoted to ending the HIV epidemic, that would put us ahead. Political will to have everyone polling more or less in the same direction with uh, COVID-19 is something, again, that could help um, HIV. But in addition, it was the importance of really thinking about unique ways to provide care, about getting out of our brick and mortar clinics and going to where people are and administering care where people are, to using telehealth effectively uh, that can enhance access. There is a tremendous risk of an expanding the digital divide for those who don't have access to broadband and so on being left behind and worsening disparities. But it also can have tremendous promise. Another lesson has been the importance of housing. Look how many temporary housing arrangements were made in COVID to allow for quarantine or to allow for those who are homeless to have a place to live uh, so that uh, uh, appropriate precautions could be taken. 
it's so important housing is healthcare and COVID-19 showed that in spades um, for us. So there are so many um, important lessons that we learned that we just must carry forward. I feel like those are some pretty big ifs, though. I mean, I, I you're not the first person I've spoken with working in the HIV world who has kind of expressed that. Yes, we have learned some lessons about a national effort to mobilize against an infectious disease. Sure, we've learned those lessons. It's another thing altogether, um, you know, whether or not that same kind of effort will actually be applied to HIV. No, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, you've probably talked to us that have been, you know, shouting this type of thing from the rooftops for years. I don't know at which point we'll pick up the ball and carry it. I think that you're exactly right. We're concerned about whether these lessons will be heard and whether change can happen. And I'm not kidding myself. These are hard changes. This is not easy. It is not easy to uh, reimagine the system of housing in the United States. It's not easy to think about how do we dismantle the effects of structural racism that have been building for decades. But we have to engage in that important work and start to do those things, even though they're difficult problems. Dr. Wendy Armstrong is medical director of Grady Health System's HIV Clinic in Atlanta. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is Chief Content Officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.